Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. We're going to continue on with our uh, walking through the Beatitudes. Cheryl, you did, I think you did the law bit last week I heard a rumour about, so I figured I could move on to murder. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> so we're on, we're, on, we're on the murder section tonight, um, which will be great. Um, and and uh, it's very good. Let me read it to you to start and then um, we'll dig in. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny." Isn't that just wonderful, uplifting words of Jesus? (laughs) Um, I need to remind you that especially in the next section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, Jesus uses humour and exaggeration a lot. Uh, We don't always pick that up, but he does. And we will encounter some of that as we're going through. And you need to remember that I think that the people who were listening to him when he was giving these messages often would have laughed Jesus was a master communicator and all master communicators know that humour is a wonderful way to access people's thinking and understanding. So some of what we read is funny. We think, oh my goodness, it's in the Bible, it must be true. Jesus is saying, you know, if you call um, someone you fool, you're going to hell. But I think everyone who heard Jesus say these words would have had a good little giggle because they would have understood the exaggeration that Jesus was making about some of these things. So the next, you know, couple of sections as we go through this, we'll we'll encounter some of that. Of course, now we're speculating as to what exaggeration is and where the humour is. That is a speculation on our part. So if you want to take all this literally, you're welcome to. Um, But I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that in the scripture. You fool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This, 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 you, you have heard it said, do not murder but I tell you, is the first of six, you have heard it said, buts, that we will encounter in a string. And when Jesus is doing these six, he is speaking about incredibly human things. He's speaking about blood, sweat and tears. He's speaking about real humanity. Um, That's what he's trying to drive at with these things. So we're going to, you know, hear what Jesus says about anger. We're going to hear what Jesus says about lust. We're going to hear what Jesus has to say to power. 
We're going to hear what Jesus has to say about the words that we speak, about revenge and about love. All of those things are incredibly human things. Lust, power, language, anger, love. They're earthy, sweaty, human kinds of things. And Jesus is speaking right into each one of them, calling us into his way of living, calling us in our humanity to live as he is fully human and showing us what it is like to live as fully human. So Jesus is dealing with very human things, all of which are very relevant to each one of our lives. So I'm hoping that as we speak through them, there'll be things that come up for you that confront your own humanity and challenge you to come forth more into the way of Jesus. And along, along the way, we might have a little bit of fun. So I think in each one of these, we'll see that Jesus is seriously upping the ante on what it means to follow him. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, even in your anger, you may be sinful. It's like, I, I think of it like this. It's like we all thought we were doing high jump. And we thought, maybe I'll get over the bar. And then Jesus comes along and says, actually, it's pole vault. And you're like, I don't have a pole. <laughs> That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Though I think I'm taking a, a stab at the fact that everybody in this room has all succeeded in not murdering. I'm not asking you to admit. Um, but, you know, I, I would imagine that to not murder someone is reasonably easy for most people to succeed at in life. But when Jesus ups the ante to the way we deal with our anger towards one another, then we start to encounter the realness of our own human condition and the problems we encounter deep in our heart. We might be able to successfully not murder someone, but do we all deal well with the anger that lies within us? I don't think so. And so I think that in, some of, in nearly all of these statements, I fully believe that Jesus is pushing us into grace. He's not pushing us into a higher standard of the law. He's pushing us into grace. He's pushing us into understanding that on our own, we can't do this. And so we need Jesus. And this is the paradox of some of what Jesus says in these verses. Those who think they can enter into God's kingdom by their own efforts actually won't enter. That's what Jesus says at the end there in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If we think we can get there by our own actions and our own strength, we're actually not going to enter. But if we realise that there's no way we can do life God's way without Jesus, then paradoxically, that's the way you enter. That is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we actually know that we can't do this, and we live with the humility around, I actually can't do this, we're actually entering into God's way, into God's kingdom. When we think we can actually do this, 
paradoxically, we find ourselves on the outside. So this is the, the strangeness, I think, of what Jesus is talking about. Knowing that we desperately need Jesus leads us down a path of transformation. Thinking that we can succeed if we just use enough willpower or self-control keeps us stuck. That's the 12-step program, isn't it, Les? Knowing that we can't do this and we need help actually gets us into the kingdom. Thinking that if we just, if we could just stop that behaviour with a bit more self-control or a bit more change of circumstance actually keeps us stuck. We desperately need Jesus. And I'm reminded when, I, when I'm reading about this stuff and thinking about this stuff of the rich young ruler, the ruler who comes to Jesus and it's written in Luke chapter 18. And Luke writes, A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. And what does he say? All of these I've kept since I was a boy. Tick, 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 tick. I'm okay. And when Jesus heard this, he says, you still lack one thing. And it's almost like on some level, it's easy to live up to the letter of the law. It's easy to tick the Ten Commandments if you try real hard. You could do it. And even if you add in the 613 other commandments that the Pharisees had devised at the time of Jesus, on a really good day, you could probably tick every box and think you were righteous. But in doing that, you absolutely miss the point of what God is trying to lead us into as his people. We're missing the point of God's dream for humanity, that it's about more than law-keeping and it's about something much deeper than that. It's possible to keep the law and to miss the point. And Jesus, when he encountered a lot of this in the Pharisees, speaks about it in his woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is what Jesus, I think, is driving at when he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, I want to speak to the anger inside your heart. If you think you're okay just because you haven't slaughtered someone this week, (laughs) you're like a whitewashed tomb. You might look okay on the outside, but on the inside, you might be full of dead man's bones. I think this is what Jesus is driving at in all of this. Jesus is not just interested in our behaviour. He's actually really interested in our hearts. And so it's not just about clearing the bar of not murdering. It's about how much anger and contempt you harbour in your heart towards others. And all of us struggle with that. I struggled with that this week. I called someone a rude name. I won't repeat it because I might have to put an E for expletive on, on 
the podcast when it goes up and I don't know that I want to do that. I sh- but honestly, I, and it wasn't you, it wasn't my husband <laughs> and it wasn't anyone I know, but it was just someone that I was just really annoyed at and I was having a conversation with a friend and I just found it really easy to just call that person a name like Raka or you fool. I found it really easy to do that. They weren't there. They'd never know I said that. And like, I might think, oh, that's okay because I didn't murder them, but it reveals something in our hearts when we feel like we can speak of other people like that, other people that bear the image of God, that we think we can just say mean things about them. So I failed, I failed this week. And I probably fail every week and every day if you were to ask my children about the anger in my heart. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause. Now, in some translations, it actually doesn't include that bit, without cause, but there is actually an adverb in the original language that adds in without cause. So I think what Jesus, you know, we are, there is space in life to get angry at injustice. There is space in life to be outraged about things that stand against the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not trying to completely eliminate anger from our lives and just make us like mono-emotional human beings. He's talking about the anger we have with one another, interpersonal, relational anger without cause, like without good reason or maybe with some good reason but not enough good reason in terms of Jesus's Jesus's thoughts. And there's an interesting escalation of consequences that we find in verse 22. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. So judgment, we start with judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is a term of contempt, probably what I use for this person this week, is answerable to the court or the Sanhedrin, the religious court, And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, I want to pause there because I remember a couple of weeks ago when I did my introduction for the Sermon on the Mount, I was going to say to you, we are going to keep ourselves incredibly earthed as we're we're preaching and reading through the Sermon on the Mount and we're not going to make this about eternal life. So what I need to say to you about that translation, hell, is that that's not the meaning of the word in the original language. In some translations, you'll, they'll actually write the original word. The word was Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was an actual place. So Jesus is not talking about if you call someone an idiot, you're going to go to hell when you die. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you call um, your, someone you fool, you're in danger of the fires of Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a valley south of Jerusalem. So it was a literal place. Um, It was the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. It's where they threw all their refuse, all their refuse, all the bones and the carcasses of animals, and they lit fires there to burn it. This was, it was like saying you're in the danger of white scully. Is that what our 
I mean, you know, if we, if we wrote that down, you're in the danger of White Scully. Everyone would be like, oh, yeah, he's talking about the dump. And then 2,000 years later, people would be like, wow, White Scully, that's where you go when you die if you're bad. Um, but so that, that's, that's, that's the challenge we have. And, of course, you know, we've got Dante to thank for his eternal fires of doom that has, like, just in, invaded a whole lot of the imagination around the afterlife. But that's not really what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about an actual place. And in the Old Testament, Gehenna or the Valley of Himnon, which is south of Jerusalem, is mentioned many times and it's always mentioned in reference to death and destruction. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, we have King Ahaz, who was a very bad king. He goes to the Valley of Himnon to worship other gods other than Yahweh and part of his worship was to sacrifice his own children and burn them to worship the other gods. So it is. Be- so in in the folklore of the Jewish mind, it is a it is a bad place. It is a place of idolatry. It's a place of destruction, and it's a place of terrible things. And then we find in Jeremiah chapter nineteen that Jeremiah is talking about he's prophesying to Jerusalem and the kings of Judah. And he's saying that judgment is going to come upon you, kings of Judah and you people of Jerusalem, because you have gone to the valley of Himnon and you have sacrificed your children to other gods. You have burnt up your children in this place. And I tell you that death and destruction and burning will come upon you for the way that you have gone against Yahweh. So it's you, it's so, and then it, in Jesus' day, it's the literal rubbish dump and the place where they burn all the fire. So Jesus isn't saying that if you get angry with your brother or sister, you're going to hell when you die. I think he's saying if you live with anger in your heart, it will destroy you. Anger in your heart, unresolved, is a place of death and destruction. So you think it's easy to not kill someone else, but I tell you that your anger is killing you and you need to come face to face with it. I think that's what Jesus is driving at, that he knows that unresolved anger in our life is actually death and destruction for us. It's not just consequences in relationship, but anger can really kill, and it's not killing others, it's killing ourselves. In verses 23 to 24, I find these verses really interesting. Jesus says, Therefore, after he said all of this, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is where Jesus is getting a little bit funny because I think he knows that's a bit ridiculous. Like who is going to be, I mean, what are they offering? A couple of pigeons, a couple of sacks of grain. You get all the way up to, you get all the way to the front of the line. And then you remember something, and then what are you supposed to do? Just leave it there? Oh, excuse me, I'll be like, he's being funny, okay, about this, but he's driving down the point of how serious I think this is. But what really intrigues me about these verses is I think on some level I've always read them like this. If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that you have something against someone else, leave your gift there in front of the altar and then go and be reconciled to them. But that's not actually what Jesus says. Jesus says, that when you get to the place of worship, if you know that someone has something against you, you go and be reconciled. And that takes a huge level of interpersonal self-awareness and humility 
and the willingness to admit that maybe you have done something wrong to someone that has affected someone else. Jesus isn't talking about the people you need to forgive. Jesus is talking to you about the people who need to forgive you. Jesus is upping the ante on worship. He's saying, if you want to worship me, but you know you have hurt, offended, neglected, or made someone angry, first go and deal with that. Go and humble yourself. And again, only the humble person is willing to admit that they have been wrong. Only a humble person is willing to acknowledge that they've hurt someone. It's easy to acknowledge the people that have hurt us. Oh, I'm hurt. I feel a bit offended. I need, I need to forgive that person. I really do. It's a lot harder for us to go, you know what? I was out of line. I may or may not have really hurt someone. But Jesus cares about this so significantly. He'd rather me leave my twittering pigeons at the altar and go and deal with it and then come back. Then have me worship him knowing that I've offended someone else. I find that really interesting, how much Jesus cares about our hearts, how much Jesus cares about our interpersonal relationships, how much Jesus wants us to know ourselves and know how our rough edges and our harsh words and our out-of-line behaviour actually impacts one another. And he drives us towards humility, that we would go to one another and say, I'm sorry. He makes asking for forgiveness more important than singing songs of worship. That's incredible. I think it's really easy sometimes to live without regard for the consequences of our own behaviour. Sometimes we just think, oh, I'm just being me, I'm just living, everyone else can deal with me, you know. But Jesus pushes us towards understanding how our behaviour affects those around us and how we should take responsibility for it and seek forgiveness as an important act of worship. The way we relate to one another really matters to God and he sends us down the path of intentional reconciliation and peacemaking. Intentional reconciliation and peacemaking. He says that is more worthy, more, more important to me than, than worship, than sacrifices and offerings and singing songs. And that is challenging. That is where Jesus is pushing us into what it really means to be human. You want to talk about what it means to be spiritual, don't talk about your prayer life, don't talk about the songs you sing, don't talk about how close you feel to the presence of God, but talk about how you participate in reconciliation, how you pursue peacemaking, how you live as if horizontal relationships with one another and the world really matter. That's discipleship. That's the deep stuff that Jesus is pushing us into and that's why it's pole vaulting and we need the grace of God because we all struggle with this. I have come to understand that God is more interested in my reality than in my morality. This is what Jesus is talking about, I think. He's more interested in my inner truth 
than in my outward behaviour. You have heard it said, do not murder. Great, everyone can do that. But I tell you, what is in your heart, that is what matters. And God is more interested in our reality than our morality. Now, I'm not saying that morality doesn't matter. Don't hear me say that. It's not either or. But I am saying we are just whitewashed tombs or dirty cups if we just think we can behave properly and not address the issues of our heart. God is really interested in what's deepest within you, even if that is out-of-control rage. He would rather you be real, deeply real with him in your innermost being than just play the good card of, I cannot murder. And even if I try hard, I can watch my language and never call anyone an idiot. I mean, you could still jump the bar if you want to really try it. Like, you'd even still never call anyone an idiot and harbour a whole lot of anger in your heart. But Jesus is wanting to dive a whole lot deeper than that. And I'm by no means any kind of psychologist, but I have come to understand that my anger reveals something about me. The things that make me angry, the people that make me angry, actually say a whole lot more about me than they do about the person or the circumstance with which I'm angry. And I've also come to learn that anger is usually the easier way to express something that's much deeper. And my anger is usually masking either my pain and my hurt or it's masking my pride and my selfishness. That's just how I roll. My anger, it's much easier for me to be angry than it is for me to feel hurt. So when I feel hurt, anger is much easier and lashing out is much nicer, feels good, than just to admit I've been hurt. And anger is usually the way that my pride and my selfishness um, expresses itself. When I'm angry with my kids, usually it's because they're not doing what I want them to do. That's, that's where my, you know, and I mean, look, there are sometimes my children should just do what I want them to do. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But I am saying there are times when my sheer impatience with them is just because I feel selfish and I want my time and I want things smoothly and I don't want the hassle and I don't want the arguing. So you can feel the anger rise up and it's not got a whole lot to do with what's happening among them, but it's got a whole lot to do with how that's impacting my life. And so my anger is usually an ease, a more easily outward expression of something that's much, much deeper. And I know that to let Jesus come into my places of pain and hurt or to let Jesus come into the places of my pride and my selfishness is a whole lot more costly than just keeping him on the outside where anger dwells. But again, this is what Jesus is driving at. Do not harbour anger in your hearts. He cares about what we do with our anger and he cares about what lies deeper than our anger because he knows that his healing power and his ability to transform sits right at the deep places. If only we'll let him in. But so often our anger is a mask for something else. 
I want to read you this quote, and we might come back to it a bit in the coming weeks, because it's something that has really um, confronted my thinking and I guess informed some of my thinking, and it's by a guy called John Middleton Murray. I have no idea who he is. I just heard read this quoted in a book. But he writes, For a good man to realise that it is better to be whole than to be good is to enter on a straight and narrow path compared to which his previous rectitude was flowery licence. So let me read that to you again because I know it's kind of deep and it's got big words in there and I actually defined rectitude for you because I needed to define it for myself. For a good man to realise that it's better to be whole than to be good is to enter on a straight and narrow path compared to which his previous rectitude was flowery licence. You have heard it said, do not murder. That's what we've been told is good. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the wholeness in our heart. The anger, the pride, the selfishness. We cannot murder and be good and be nowhere near wholeness. And as soon as we realise that what Jesus has for us on offer is wholeness, then just being good and living the good life, like not murdering and not you know, committing adultery, that just sounds like flowery license because we're going to the deep places of Jesus transforming our lives. It's challenging, isn't it? So my questions to you as we finish tonight are these. This week, will you pay attention to your anger, whether it comes in short bursts of road rage or kid rage or workmate rage or whatever mini harmless bursts of anger we consider appropriate in our culture or whether or not it's some of the deeper anger that you might have in your heart towards your spouse your friends, towards God, towards yourself? Will you pay attention to the anger inside of you? And then when you've paid attention to it and you can recognise anger, uh, will you be willing to let Jesus into that place to heal what is underneath the anger? Whether that's pride, selfishness, fear, Will you let him in to the places where you hurt and lash out of? Will you let him in there so he can actually bring you healing? This week, will you practice believing that Jesus cares as much about your relationships with other people as he cares about your relationship with him? Will you spend some time considering that perhaps your greatest act of worship this week might be the actions of peacemaking and reconciliation in the relationships around you? Will you truly see that as an act of worship? And as we finish, I, I just 
absolutely felt like we had to come to the table. Because when we start to dive into this sort of stuff, Jesus wants wholeness for us so passionately. To be fully human, I think Jesus is saying, is to be completely whole on the inside. And we cannot get there without the person of Jesus. He is our pole. In fact, we don't even have to jump when we've got Jesus. It's a, the metaphor for completely breaks down. But my point is when I think about the places of anger in my life, I know that the answer for me is not greater self-control. It's not greater trying. It's not more boundaries in my life to inhibit my behaviour in a negative direction. And this will become more and more important when we start to talk about lust and when we start to talk about power and we start to talk about the effect of our words. You know, the experience of wholeness that Jesus holds out for us is not trying harder so that we overcome this stuff by ourselves. It's realising that we fall to our knees at the feet of Jesus and we say, I cannot do this without you. You are my life and my breath and my everything and without the presence of Jesus in my life, I am less than fully human. And so I felt like we just had to come to the table and eat the body of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness for our sins, our very life, our very sustenance, as an act of saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I desperately need you. Come into my life in ever deeper ways and meet me in the deep places and bring me through. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to eat and we're going to drink and we're going to say to Jesus, come in. I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb. I want to live the whole life. And we're going to just be with Jesus and let Jesus transform us because that's the only answer, the power of Christ in us, not our own strength. So let's eat and drink. What we might do is maybe you come up here and I'll serve you some bread and you can choose the port or the juice. And then we might just go back and sit in our seats and hold it in our hands and then I will pray over us and then we'll eat and drink together. Is that cool? Jesus, we hold you in our hands and we say that we need you. We need you more than life itself. And Jesus, we know that you offer to us the full life. You offer wholeness. You offer healing. You offer transformation. You offer us the chance to be fully human the way God made us to be. And we acknowledge tonight that we can't do that on our own, Jesus. Many of us have tried all kinds of ways to deal with our anger, to self-control, to sort it out. But tonight we say, Jesus, come and help us. We need you. We need you in our hearts, dealing with the root causes of what makes us angry. And so as we eat and as we drink, we just acknowledge our dependence upon you. 
We acknowledge the poverty of our spirit. We say we want to enter the kingdom of God, the life of God, the goodness of God. We want to enter here and now, not just in the afterlife. We want it here and now. Your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives, in our families' lives, in our suburbs' lives, in our nation's life, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. So we submit ourselves to you. And we say, come help us, Jesus. You are our grace. You are our strength. You are our source. Come and live in us. More of you and less of us, we pray. Amen. Well, bless you. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.